Well, good morning, church family. How we doing? All right. Welcome to Integrity. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time, I echo what AJ said. Welcome you. We're really glad that you are here uh, this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis uh, chapter 2. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we can have it up on the screen, but it's in the very first part of your Bible. Just open it up and turn a few pages. You'll be there in Genesis uh, chapter 2. We're in a series entitled Created for Community, and we uh, have been going through this for the last several weeks. This is kind of our summer series as we launch the fall. We've got really exciting things happening this fall. We saw tremendous growth in our uh, groups this past year, in our small groups, and we've got some new things that we're going to try to implement to even help uh, enrich our discipleship here at Integrity. Uh, We here at Integrity believe that discipleship happens in community, and so we would love to see you in one of those groups uh, this fall. And so a couple ways that you can learn about those groups. First of all, we're going to have a members meeting uh, next month. That's going to be on August 13th at 4 p.m. So if you are a member of Integrity Church, you've gone through the starting point process, uh, you've been affirmed as a member, we want to invite you to come to that because we're going to unpack what it means to be in one of these new groups that we talk about um, this fall and uh, how you can be involved and how you can be a part of it, how you can support it. And then we are going to have this for everybody. This is our um, fall uh, kickoff. Our fall kickoff is on, um, I almost said October, August 27th at 6 p.m. I cannot believe we're already talking about August. Like, where did the summer go? Do you know that we only have like one more month uh, one more week of this month, and then we're in August. And so it, this is a great time, though. The fall kickoff is a great time to invite uh, a new person to come. If you are new, this is a great thing for you to come to, to get to know some more people and to get involved in our groups uh, this fall. And I just want to tell you about those few things. We are really thankful uh, that God is growing his church, that new people are coming and new people are getting plugged into uh, groups and uh, what we look forward to in the fall. And uh, we can only do that be- because um, we have great people who love this church and serve this church faithfully and, and give to this church. And we just want to say uh, thank you so much. If you would like to serve or volunteer or give, uh, you can just scan the QR code in front of you and you can um, give um, just online. You can give uh, reoccurring. We make it really easy for you to set that up here at Integrity Church. But your giving, it fuels our it fuels our mission uh, to make disciples of Jesus. And so that's why uh, we get to do what we do and, and be faithful to Christ here in our community and throughout the world. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into what God has for us in Genesis 2 and 3. Father, we are grateful for all that you're doing in the life of our church. We're grateful for the songs that we just sang, that you are a holy God who we worship and we bow down to. And God, would you have our attention this morning? Would we give you our hearts and our minds and our, and our emotions and all the things that are going on underneath the surface? Lord, would we give you those things and would we not hide those things from you? God, I pray, Lord, that you would work and move in our hearts and, and work and move in our minds as we open up your word. I pray that your spirit would would just intercede for us. I pray that your spirit um, would just invade our time together and really um, remove any kind of barrier that's there, and that your spirit would guide us to know you better and to love you um, more. And God, we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Genesis 2 and 3 is where we'll be this morning. And so as we've unpacked community, and we've talked about a lot of different ways that you have been created for community, the question I want to ask this morning is, what keeps you from community? What keeps you from doing life with other people, specifically your brothers and sisters in Christ? And so most of the time when I ask that question, we say um, busyness. Uh, We'll say, well, we're just too busy. I've just got too many things going on. Or maybe we just say, well, I just haven't been asked by anyone to hang out. And so maybe you're just sitting there uh, waiting for someone to invite you. And maybe maybe it's time for you to make a step to, to get to know somebody you're and so sometimes we can get caught in these excuses. Okay, well, I just don't, I don't know enough people that are like me or that I have things in common with. And so those are the reasons why I don't engage in community. But there's a bigger thing that I think underneath all of that that will cause us to run away from or even hide in community. And here it is. It's this thing called shame. And the Bible talks a lot about shame. The Bible talks about how the Bible the Bible talks about how shame causes us to hide. Uh, I heard one a great analogy of shame uh, said said by someone that was that the shame is the swampland of the soul. The swampland of the soul. That's quite a picture, isn't it? That's not a place for many of us to live, but oftentimes Satan wants us to live there. And our goal is not to live there this morning, but rather to put on some uh, coverall waiters and figure out what's in there so that we can get out, right? But Satan loves to keep us there. He loves us to live there. And if you've ever been in a swamp, it doesn't just stink, it stanks, right? Because if you're in a swamp, you feel dirty. And if you believe, if you're dirty, that means that you think that no one loves you. I go fishing all the time, and one of the things I've, when I go fishing, uh, especially around here in freshwater fish, I'm doing catfishing or something like that, I come home and I smell really, really bad, and my wife uh, kisses me every time I come in the door, except when I come back from fishing. So I've learned to change clothes in the garage, and then I come in, right? Because why? I, I feel dirty, right? And so sometimes if we are in the swampland of the soul, we feel like, well, no one is going to love me. I am too dirty to be loved, and w- which means we will end up hiding who God calls us to be. We hide our struggles. We hide our emotions. We hide our passions, our dreams. And what's left when that happens is we hide our true selves. We go into fantasy or pretending. We go into anger or resentment or entitlement. And we don't step forward with the boldness in the way that God has designed us to live, to be truly known and to be truly seen and to be truly loved. And when we do this, we hide from community. We hide from relationships with others. We hide from our spouses. We'll hide from our close and dear friends and the people that are actually there who could help us. And so what I want to do this morning, I want us to look at where shame began. And we're going to hopefully do this by um, looking at the swampland of the soul for a moment, hopefully to get you out of the swampland of the soul so that you can live in more fertile and promising ground. Now, to get the shame, we have to access really what's going on uh, beneath the surface, not just how you show up on a Sunday, but what's really going on underneath that? What's going on between what's driving you, uh, why we wear masks, why we pretend? We have to do a little bit of work this morning, so I 
want us to, to pay attention uh, to our hearts and what the Spirit might show you about this thing called shame. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see in Genesis 2 and 3 uh, where shame began and, and kind of what happened to our first parents, um, Adam and Eve in the garden. They display this thing called shame. And so what we're going to do is kind of learn what they did and hopefully unlearn what they did so that we can not live in the swamp land of the soul. So I know when we talk about shame, y'all get real quiet, but are we ready? Genesis 2 and 3. All right. You don't need to be ashamed. We're good. All right. Genesis 2 is where we'll start. It says, this is the creation account in Genesis 2, and it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work and he had done. And he had rested on the seventh day, blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so we said this last week, Genesis 1, we, we walked through Genesis 1 last week and then you see Genesis 2, it seems like there, it's kind of confusing. Sometimes it will seem like um, there's two creation accounts happening, but we said last week, chapter 1 is more of a, of a poem and chapter 2 is sort of the explanation of that poem. So chapter two is getting into the details of what is beautifully and poetically explained in chapter one. And so we're seeing the explanation of God's creation. I know that sounds like a rap, but that's what it is. This is what chapter two is, the explanation of God's creation. And so then we find the creation of man and woman. Verse four, these are the generations in the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord had made the heavens, the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the the ground. And so right off the bat, we get a little clue of what mankind was supposed to do. And this is going to be key in understanding even the purpose of man and woman. Because before God placed man on the earth, the world as we see it in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, it is rugged and it is untamed. And we said last week that the garden is sort of the blueprint of how God would want the rest of the world to look. And so he puts man in the garden, uh, so he says, and he makes the rest of the world untamed and rugged. And he says, go and cultivate, go and create. But look what God did, verse seven. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and listen to this, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. Now, I just want to stop here just for a second as a sub point that even in creation, we see a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the Bible speaks, it says that we were created from dust. It is often described as something of no value. But when were we given value? It's when God did what? He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. And interestingly enough, the the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament language used for breath is the same word that is used for spirit. 
And even in the uh, same case in the, Greek, in the New Testament as well, this is why the King James translation says that when this happened, man became a living soul. In other words, we were nothing until God breathed life into us. You know what that is? That is a picture right there of salvation. That we, the Bible says in the New Testament, that we were dead in our sins until the Holy Spirit of God breathed life in us. And when he breathed life in us, he gave us faith to believe in the finished work of Christ. And so even in creation, we get a picture of what would later come in the gospel. And this is a beautiful picture, but what this shows us right out of the gate is that we have value. Mankind, male and female, have value. That God took us from nothing and he breathed life into us. And there's a ton more I could say here, but let's continue. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in, in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made a spring up in every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, skip down in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, listen, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it of it, you shall surely die. Now, what we see here is this picture right out of what, we, what we've unpacked here in these verses. There's something specifically about a man here that we, that we see. If we, were to read any other, if we weren't to read any other thing about manhood in the Bible, what would we learn just from these verses? He, a man is to cultivate and to be responsible. And even when we see the New Testament unpack um, gender roles, whether it be a husband and a wife, um, how men and women relate in the Bible, oftentimes the New Testament writers, they'll hearken back to Genesis 1 and 2, because what they're trying to show us is these are timeless principles that show up for us to know how God has created man, male and female. But specifically for the male, he says, I want you to cultivate. He's going to say, make the rest of this world look like the Garden of Eden. Larry Crabb wrote an excellent book called The Silence of Adam. And he said, men were to bring order from chaos. Do you hear that, men? Order from chaos. And again, God could have absolutely done it all by himself to display his glory, but he gave man this role to continue in his creative work. But what else does he tell him to do? He tells him to be responsible. Look in verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, right? Why? You were created for community, right? He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man called every living creature that it was named 
uh, and, and the man gave names to all the livestock and birds and the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. And so man was said, God said, I want you to be responsible. I want you, I want you to cultivate and I want you to be responsible. Two things he was responsible for, naming the animals. And so um, God would bring forth the animals and Adam would name them. That one looks weird. I'm going to call that a llama. That one was lazy. I'm going to call that a sloth. Whatever it is, this is what he did. And so this was his responsibility. And then if you notice in verse 17, he told him one verse. There's only one commandment that man had. You can eat of any tree except for the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. You shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall die. So this is the only verse that man had to memorize, right? It's really simple. There's not a whole Bible. There's not a whole bunch of commands. This is it. So he has to name the animals and memorize a verse. Really, really simple, you would think, right? But here's how it breaks down. God says it's not good for man to be alone. God said that before sin entered the world, we were created for community And then you see in verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so here's where man is cultivating, he's being responsible, and then God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to give you community, but not just community, someone that you will absolutely fall head over heels with. Here's man, he is wild and free in love with this woman. How do we know that? Well, he's boring at first. Llama, lion, tiger, bear, woman. He breaks out in song, right? He turns into Ryan Reynolds and spirited. He breaks out in song and he's, there's nothing for him to hide. There's, he's undignified uh, before this woman. He sees this woman and says, this is the one that I'm going to cultivate and make the rest of the world look like the garden with. She and I are going to do this together and we're going to do life um, together, and I love what Moses does here. And this is where I want you to see shame unfold. You have this beautiful relationship between a husband and wife. This is where we even say at every wedding, the two will become one. This is where this happens here. But look at what Moses says as he reflects back. Moses writes his own words in this creation account as he's writing this for us. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not, what? Ashamed. Ashamed. Okay, I could totally get into the nuances of here of breaking codependency from your parents, moving out of your parents' house, and becoming adult, and that's definitely here, all right? But I want to take you to somewhere else. What's the very last thing that Moses says based on this truth, based on the fact that male and female are created for community, for love, for oneness? 
he says that they were naked and unashamed. Have you ever thought about the placement of unashamed? It doesn't say naked and unafraid or naked and in love. It says naked and unashamed. There's an author by the name of Dr. Kirk Thompson who wrote a book called The Soul of Shame, where he points out that Moses chose the word unashamed to give his Hebrew audience, the original audience, some insight of what will soon enter the picture in Genesis 3. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis 3. Male and female went from unashamed to ashamed. And that's what we're going to see. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit that is in the tree of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden. Tree, there it is. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is not what God said, if you remember in chapter two. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, uh, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now I want you to see even the difference between the very end of chapter two and the very beginning of chapter three. You see oneness and closeness in chapter two. And then in chapter three, it is almost like Satan has immediately put this couple apart from each other. Notice when she took the fruit, she gave some to her husband who was what? With her, meaning he is standing there passively. He had one verse to memorize, and then he hears his wife, who he just sang about in chapter two, butcher the one verse, and he doesn't say anything. Because what did she add? She added, neither shall you touch it. That's not the one verse. So if you've got one verse to memorize, he's got to know that she said it wrong. He should say something, right? And it's almost, I've heard one say that um, it's possible that she's saying that God is so unreasonable that he would not let us touch it. Or she was just ignorant to what God had actually said. Either way, Adam is standing there doing nothing. There's no defending. There's no correcting. He's literally standing there waiting to see if she does take the fruit, if she'll just drop dead. That's pretty messed up, right? Now, I see, I've seen people read the text and say, see, Eve was the problem. She was the one who was the problem. No, both were the problem. Eve was deceived, yes, but Adam wasn't deceived. He actually knew what was happening and did nothing. He did nothing on purpose. Adam should have seen Satan's lies and rejected them, but instead he refuses to trust God. And I want to show you that this is the beginning of shame, Shame always begins with lies. And what does Satan do? He lies over and over and over again. You see in verse one, he says, did God actually say that to you? 
You see in verse five, beginning, you will be like God. You see the second part of verse five, he says you will know good and evil. And you even see it in verse four, you shall not surely die. So look at all, let me show you all four. He says, did God actually say? And it's important to know that Satan knew precisely what God said. He's just passively, uh, passive aggressively approaching Eve with this question to bring about doubt in her own heart. He is basically shaming um, Eve for believing what God would actually say. And this is what Satan loves to do to us. If he could take us away from the truth, if he could shame us from the truth of believing in God, that is the birthplace of the swampland of our own souls. If he can make God's word seem ridiculous or outdated or uh, irrelevant or fallible, he has done his job. Satan loves to invoke doubt to what God had already said. I I had a friend of mine who said it better. Satan loves to put question marks where God puts periods. And this is the beginning of shame for so many of us. Satan wants you to believe that God is distant, he wants you to believe uh, that, that um, if he can have you doubt the essential truths of Scripture, James says that he wants us to be one who doubts that we would be blown and tossed by every wind and unstable in all of our ways. But as believers, we are told to put on the, the armor of God, to guard ourselves with the truth of God's word. But this is why Satan loves to attack by questioning what God has already declared. So this is the beginning of the lie, but let me show you the next two. The next two are kind of together. He says, you will be like God, and you will know good and evil. Tim Keller argued, and rightly so, that sin is always saying that I want to be God, and I get to determine what is good and what is evil. And that is exactly what's happening here in the garden. Notice that Eve is the first one to declare something good without God declaring it. Adam and Eve believed that they knew what was right in their own eyes, and they believed that they could live fine and independent from God. Do you see the isolation that's happening between them and the Lord? Again, this isolation from the Lord is the beginning of shame. And then he says, lastly, you will not surely die. Satan wanted Eve to think about only what was temporary and satisfying more than what was eternally at stake. And our temptation is often this way. We'll often think about what feels good in the moment. And Satan loves to say, don't worry about it. Here, Satan simply says, it won't happen. You will not surely die. Erwin Lutzer, in a book called Satan's Evangelistic Strategy for This New Age, he says, Satan wants us to forget that we, will, that we live with a stick of dynamite in our hand and we have, no how long, we have no idea how long the fuse is. And again, all of this is related to shame. If Satan could just get us to believe that our actions don't matter, it means that God doesn't matter, which means that we don't matter. And what is the result of this happening? What is the result of them giving in to these lies that Satan says? Look at verse 7. It says, They took of the fruit, and their eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I've heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said to the, it's the woman that you gave to be with me. And she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what have you done? What, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, it's the serpent who deceived me. And I ate. Now, what happens here in response? They, it says they cover themselves and they hide. And then when they hide, they blame The man blames the woman. The woman blames the devil. And by the way, blame is most often a result of shame because if I could just cast some humiliation on someone else, no one would have to know about what I'm hiding. No one would have to know about the embarrassment or or what I'm ashamed of underneath the surface. And so what does God do? He looks for the man and he says, where are you? Now, I used to read this passage, and I would think about a father disciplining his son and being harsh and being hard. I used to think about the picture of the Christmas story after Ralphie gets into a fight with Scott Farkas, and he's hiding um, in his room, and his brother is hiding under the sink. Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. I used to think this is how God would speak to us, but I want to show you that this is a relational question, not a harsh question. It's not God coming to interrogate Adam in some sort of angry, militant way. One commentator says, this is the heartfelt cry of an anguished father. God already knew where Adam was. This question was not meant to show, this question was just meant to show that Adam was in fact hiding from love. This is not a judgment question, but one more of relationship This question shows that God seeks that which is lost. God seeks that which is hiding. And the sad thing is shame causes us to miss out on receiving the very thing we need from God and others. There's a book called Hiding from Love, and the author says, when you experience emotional injury, fear, or shame, or your first impulse is to hide the hurting parts of yourself from God, others, and even yourself. And the problem is that when you hide your injuries and frailties and you isolate yourself from the very very things you need in order to heal, mature, which is connection, intimacy, and love. And friend, I want to share this with you today because I believe this is one of the greatest strongholds we can face in our life when we consider community and fellowship with others and even fellowship with God. It's this thing called shame. And we will hide just like Adam and Eve will. We'll put on our own versions of fig leaves and loincloths to hide what we are so ashamed or embarrassed about. John Mihalik, which is a researcher in psychology at Boston College, he was asked, what do men and women do to conform to social norms? In other words, what are the things that men and women do to cover up Shame. Like, what are the fig leaves? What are the loincloths they use to cover up? He said that women, the top answers in this country are women to, to keep up with social norms or to conform to social norms. It was to look, to be nice, to look thin, to be modest, and to use all available 
resources for appearance. And for men, the top answers in this country were always show emotional control, show the primacy of work, and pursue status and violence. Can you see how powerful shame is, my friend? That most of the people in this world are hiding who they really are. And what happens when shame, shame exists, love cannot prevail. Don Townsend says, love cannot rule when shame is in charge. So I want us to enter into the swamp land of the soul for a little bit, not to live there, but hopefully to escape. I want us to put on some waders and enter in, though, to learn about what's really happening underneath our hearts, underneath our, underneath our, our souls. What's the fig leaves that you are using right now to cover up shame? Do you show emotional weakness? Or do you even cut off all your emotions altogether? And I know sometimes when we get into like the Bible, we go, well, emotions are bad. Emotions are not bad. God is an emotional God. God created emotions so that you would worship him and know him. Emotions can be bad, and I imagine it like we're in a car. Emotions don't belong in the trunk of the car. Emotions also shouldn't be driving the car. But emotions should be in the back seat, strapped in, where we can see them and we can access them. And I believe so many times in the Christian world, there's people we throw our emotions in the trunk of the car in the name of, well, sound doctrine and rich theology, or we let the emotions drive the car in the name of, we just want to be crazy every now and then. But sometimes, or every time, actually, it's good to know where they are so that we can access them, so that we can see what's really going on. We can see what are the fig leaves in my life? How do I show them? Am I, do I allow myself to be vulnerable? Or do I suppress how I really feel? Do I suppress uh, with um, money or power or possessions? Do I suppress with alcohol or sex or food or just staying busy or maybe even just staying religious? Are you okay allowing yourself to be vulnerable? Maybe you've bought into the lie, well, I'm weak if I'm vulnerable. Maybe we just say, well, if I'm weak and I'm vulnerable, I'll just get lost in work. Because shame says I'm only good as, as far as what I do or my status. This is why we often will pursue status or even, they even said violence. If I can, be control, if I can control, I won't have to be seen as weak. No one will see the real me. And this is true of men and women. And friends, if this is true, then if we can't allow ourselves to be weak, how do you imagine Jesus to be? Would you imagine Jesus to suppress his emotions or would you imagine Jesus to be vulnerable? I believe that Jesus was the most vulnerable and approachable man who ever walked this earth. That Jesus Christ was not afraid of humiliation. And I often find it fascinating, and I love this about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels did not edit any of Jesus' life. The Gospels were not, did not edit Jesus' betrayal. They did not edit Jesus' torture. They did not edit Jesus' shame. I mean, the disciples thought 
that Jesus was their ticket for a better life on earth. And so many ways that Jesus came were ways that did not reach the status quo. He was born in a manger, not a palace. He was grew up poor, not rich. He rode on, on a donkey in Jerusalem, not a golden carriage. He was despised, and he was rejected, and he was crucified. The gospel did not edit those parts of Jesus. I love what Isaiah 53 says about what Christ would become. This is a prophecy about Jesus, and it says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Look at what it calls Jesus, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. This is Jesus. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him who the chastisement that brought us peace. And with stripes we were healed. And like sheep we have gone astray. Who have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, look at what he did. The Lord laid on him the iniquity or the shame of us all. What does the prophet Isaiah say about Jesus? He died in the most shameful way possible. And here's why. So that we would not be alone in our shame. That he was with us in our shame and he bore our shame so that we would not stay in the swampland of the soul. And friends, you don't have to believe the lies of the accuser. You don't have to constantly live that you are unworthy or unlovable or unforgivable because of Jesus, when you fail, when you fall into sin, God doesn't come looking for you to bring shame. God the Father sees you and says, I knew you were before you were born, that you were my son, you were my daughter, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love you. I like you. I delight in you. Zephaniah 3 says that he sings over you. That shame, that shame that you carry right now, he bore it. He bore it before you were born. He died for it before you came into existence. And this is why the gospel writers did not edit Jesus' shame, because Jesus' shame is our victory. Amen, church? I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon says about this passage. He says, When I stand in my own place, I'm lost and ruined. My place is the place where Judas stood, the place where the devil lies in everlasting shame. But when I stand in Christ's place, I stand where faith has put me till I stand there. When I stand in Christ's place, the Father's everlasting beloved one, the Father's accepted one, whom the Father delighteth to our to to honor. When I stand there, I stand where faith hath put uh, the right to put me, and I am the most joyous spot that a creature of God can occupy. And he goes, he says, he wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wear his crown, the crown of glory.
He wore my dress, nay, rather, he wore my nakedness when I died upon the cross. I wear his robes, the royal robes of the king of kings. He bore my shame. I bore his honor. He endured my suffering to the end, that my joy may be full and that his joy may be fulfilled in me. I laid in the grave that I might rise from the dead and I may dwell in him. And all this he comes again to give me, to make sure to me and to all that love his appearing to show that all his people shall enter into their inheritance. Friend, aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't hide the shame on the cross, that he bore our shame? The fact that he didn't hide it and he calls us uh, not to hide ours, it calls us out of shame and into the light, out of the swampland and into the fertile ground. And I want to tell you this morning that God does not motivate you through shame. In fact, the scriptures say that God's kindness leads to repentance And so this morning, if you feel that you are hiding, maybe you feel that your fig leaves have been mounded up. I'm only worth what I do. I'm only worth the the real um, mask that I wear, the the mask that I wear and I constantly show because if people really knew it was underneath, if they knew if I didn't have this job, I didn't have this status, if I didn't have this uh, group that I was a part of, or if if they didn't think that I was this person on the outside, would they really love me? Friend, those are just fig leaves. Let the gospel apply to those places in our hearts that we often will cover up with fig leaves and loincloths. Let the Lord heal those spaces for you and hear the kindness of the Lord in the cool of the garden saying, where are you? Let me really see you. Because I sent my son to take on the shame so that you would not have to hide. That you would know through the cross of Jesus that you are lovable, that you are a son and a daughter. There's freedom here, church. There's freedom here. So just church, my invitation for you is this. Can you trust that you can be seen and loved by God right where you are? That he is that loving and that kind and that gracious. May we apply this truth this morning. God, help us. Let's pray. Father, even right now, I just pray for our hearts. I pray, Lord, even our jerk reaction to put on the next fig leaf that would cover up what's really there. And God, I pray that whatever this is that we often will cover up, Maybe it's our own personalities, our own vulnerabilities, our weaknesses, even our sin. I pray, God, that we would not fall into the devil's lies this morning, but rather we would turn to the sovereign God who loves us so much that he would send Jesus to die in our place, who bore our shame the shame that we feel when we have sin in our hearts. And Lord, you did this because of your amazing love. And so God, I pray, Father, that we would surrender this to you. Lord, if there's believers in this room, I just pray for that, for the believers in this room, that we would um, not hide our shame, but Lord, we would see that if we walk in the light 
as you are in the light, we'll have fellowship with God and we'll have fellowship with one another, that we would experience real, genuine community and honesty and love and transparency. And Lord, I pray for even those who are in this room who are not believers. I pray, Lord, that you would, they would see the kindness of Jesus who's walking in the cool of the garden and asking, where are you? I want to know you. I want you to see my love. I want you to see the joy that you can have in me. I want you to bring you out of the swamp land of the soul, that you would have rest. You would, have, you would see the favor of Jesus. And God, I just ask this right now for all that are hearing this morning, here that are here this morning in person or online, I just pray that you would just do your work and bring us out of shame and help us to see that Christ bore our shame on the cross. May that be enough for us. In Jesus' name, amen.